Science is real from the Big Bang to DNA. Science is real from evolution to the Milky Way. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Science at the Local podcast. So blatant a ripoff of Harry Shearer's Le Show that I'm almost calling it Le Science Show. Now, I'm not going to pontificate too much on the origins of this version of the podcast. I need to pontificate about some other things, to be honest. But because it's the first one, I thought it wouldn't hurt. So, what you're listening to now is the spiritual and scientific successor to the Science at the Local podcast of 2016 Vintage. It consisted, uh, The 2016 version consisted of short, informal conversations with scientists. No surprise there. About 15 or 20 minutes long. Not really a radical format, although perhaps a scholarly investigation of my line of questioning would reveal some hitherto undetected strains of radicality. Uh, Radical or not, there are some very interesting conversations which you can find over at our SoundCloud page, soundcloud.com slash science at the local, or over there on iTunes. We spoke to David Blair about gravitational waves, Renee Heller about exomoons, Aaron Greenville about desert ecology. He's actually going to come and speak at our November 2017 event. Michaela Blyton about koala gut microbes. Alice Williamson about the open source malaria research project. Shari Forbes about forensic science. Paul Young about viruses. And John Lescu about sleep ecology. So this year, 2017, I thought about trying something different. I've been listening to some podcasts uh, and they got me thinking about what might be possible with this one. So hold on to your hats, ladies and gentlemen. You're about to be subject to experimentation. Ethics approval be damned. So what's the experiment? An experiment in format, the best kind. Uh, instead of being just a conversation, I'm going to take you on a little tour of the science world. I'm take you inside. Yeah. Uh, I'm not comfortable with all of you people being on the outside. I want you to come in. So I'm going to be mixing in a healthy or perhaps unhealthy dose of politics, culture, philosophy of science, whatever I can get my hands on. I'm going to play some music. Uh, for those who know Le Show, don't worry, I'm not about to start recording my own parodies. Uh, really, what we're talking about here is a segment-oriented format. So let's get on with it. Welcome to Science at the Local.
Our first segment is news of successful grants. The Australian Research Council is reporting that there's been a $4.5 million funding boost for three new projects searching for a cure to type 1 diabetes. Australia has 120,000 sufferers of type 1 diabetes. Now, the three grants from the Type 1 Diabetes Clinical Research Network support projects including at least one researcher from outside the field of type 1 diabetes and are meant to promote collaboration, interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary. Uh, That's a big deal these days, ladies and gentlemen. Crossing boundaries. Putting our hands together across liminal spaces. The Minister for Education and Training, Simon Birmingham, said the research funding would go to some of Australia's brightest minds. I don't know on what basis he makes that claim, but uh, I trust him. And they're going to search for a cure. Now, Mr Birmingham said the funding is about ensuring no stone is left unturned in the search for a cure for type 1 diabetes. Something tells me, ladies and gentlemen, that the people putting in these grant applications didn't describe their projects as stone-turning operations. Uh, but I could be wrong. Minister Birmingham goes on to say, the Innovation Award grants encourage creativity and new ways of thinking and nurture and support, so not just nurturing but supporting too, those smart ideas to help create a better future for Australians, including those with type 1 diabetes and their families. Now, Minister Hunt, that would be Greg Hunt, said the funding support for the Innovation Award grants built on more than $35 million the coalition government was delivering for research into type 1 juvenile diabetes research, a $54 million commitment for the National Diabetes Service Scheme, and $1.5 million for additional insulin pumps for children. The three award recipients are Associate Professor Charmaine Simeonovich from Australian National University in Canberra, Associate Professor Stuart Manning, uh, I beg your pardon, Stuart Mannering from St. Vincent's Institute of Medical Research, Melbourne, and Associate Professor Shane Gray from the Garvin Institute of Medical Research, Sydney. In other grant news, the Department of Defence, Science and Technology has announced a $730 million fund for game-changing defence technologies. Now, Minister Pine was quoted as saying, As our enemies devise new ways to attack, our defence force must have advanced ways to respond and overcome new threats. He went on to say the Australian government's $730 million Next Generation Technologies Fund is designed to provide the creative solutions defence needs and at the same time benefiting Australian industry. So it's a win-win, you see. This is the first time ever any Australian government has used defence dollars to drive innovation in this way. Have you ever driven innovation, ladies and gentlemen? This is a 10-year strategic research and development program that will deliver game-changing capabilities for the Australian Defence Force of the future. Now, can someone tell me a bit about the game and how it's going to change it? Is it enough just to change the game? Or are we trying to change it in a certain way? Are we trying to add more rules or change the shape of the board. Um, So the release goes on to say that the fund is going to draw on the collective scientific expertise of our nation across both industry and university sectors. What about the government sector? What about the non-profit sector? To give the ADF a winning edge 
with advanced technologies. And the government's going to kick off the program with a $16.8 million investment by June 2017. Now, the first part of the program is Grand Challenges, where Defence is putting forward a problem with no easy solutions and asking Australians to come up with an answer. This sounds kind of exciting. These challenges will require joint, multidisciplinary research across organisations to resolve. There we have that word again, ladies and gentlemen, multidisciplinary. No more silos, no more working alone. The first such challenge, which will be soon open to proposals, so get your pens and paper ready, is to counter improvised threats, which are constantly evolving and confronting our troops. Now, improvised threats are threats devised and deployed in ways other than in conventional military action. They're not just explosive devices, they can come in many different forms, such as chemical and biological hazards. The grand challenges will bring together small, agile companies like startups, larger companies, and academic researchers to work alongside defense scientists in pursuing large-scale, mission-focused projects with clearly defined end goals. Well, that sounds quite positive. Now, defense is taking on board the risk of failure and in doing so, encouraging innovation to solve critical problems. I'm glad to see that open to failure. It does happen sometimes. Now, Defence's Science and Technology Group will lead the forward-looking research program focused on nine transformational technology areas. Uh, These were highlighted in the 2016 Defence White Paper. The nine technology areas are cybersecurity, space capabilities, quantum technologies, trusted autonomous systems, enhanced human performance, medical countermeasures, multidisciplinary material sciences, that word again, integrated intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance, and last but not least, advanced sensors, hypersonics and directed energy capabilities. That one sounds a little scary. Our next segment is Remotely Interesting. Now, ladies and gentlemen, you may or may not be aware that there's a serious amount of crap orbiting the Earth at the moment. Fortunately, some of it is extremely useful. Uh, And in the Remotely Interesting segment, we're going to take a look at some of these useful things orbiting the Earth. So, um, one of the products that have made their way into the mom-and-pop operation, Google, uh, Landsat, um, courtesy of the NASA Goddard Space Flight Center and the U.S. Geological Survey. Uh, Google's also using um, products which contain modified Copernicus Sentinel data from 2015 to 2016. What is Google doing? Now, according to Google Earth Engines Program Manager, Chris Herwig, In 2013, Google released Earth time-lapse. This was our most comprehensive picture of the Earth's changing surface. It was an interactive experience which enabled people to explore the changes like never before. To watch the sprouting of Dubai's artificial palm islands, the retreat of Alaska's Columbia Glacier, and the impressive urban expansion of Las Vegas, Nevada, soon to be home of the Raiders. Today, uh, Chris goes on to say, we're making our largest update to time-lapse yet, with four additional years of imagery, petabytes of new data, and a sharper view of the Earth from 1984 to 2016. Now, 
Which of those interests you most, ladies and gentlemen? Is it the four additional years of imagery? Is it the petabytes of data? Or perhaps the sharper view? Google has timed up with their friends at Time to give you an updated take on compelling locations. Leveraging the same techniques they used to improve Google Maps and Google Earth back in June 2016, the new time-lapse reveals a sharper view of the planet with truer colors and fewer distracting artifacts. Ladies and gentlemen, are you ever distracted by artifacts? Now they give examples in San Francisco and Oakland in California, glacial movement in Antarctica. Using the Google Earth engine, they sifted through about three quadrillion pixels. That's three followed by 15 zeros from more than five million satellite images. They took the best of all those pixels, only the best. We got the best pixels uh, to create 33 images of the entire planet, one for each year. All the way back to the formation of Earth, some four odd billion years ago. No, no, didn't go that, that far. Uh, they encoded those into 3.95 terapixel global images. You got a terapixel camera on your phone? Uh, into just over two, 25 million overlapping multi-resolution video tiles made interactively explorable by Carnegie Mellon's Create Labs Time Machine Library, a technology for creating and viewing zoomable and panable time lapses over space and time. Well, so ladies and gentlemen, check out Time Lapse at the Earth Engine website. The People's Daily of China is reporting that more than a thousand years ago, several dotted, flaked, shaped sections of the Great Wall stood in Xinjiang, protecting the border and the trade road. Recently, researchers from the China Institute of Remote Sensing and Digital Earth, under the Chinese Academy of Sciences, analyzed the distribution of ancient Great Wall sections in Xinjiang using remote sensing technology, these things that are orbiting the Earth. They also use the technology to restore the wall's appearance. Remote sensing archaeology entails the use of electromagnetic waves and other sensors for long-distance observation and detection of surface and underground remains. Aerospace development, and especially the increased resolution of remote sensing satellites, has provided greater precision and a more efficient platform for remote sensing archaeology. How about that, ladies and gentlemen? You can be a remote sensing archaeologist. Nie Yuping, a researcher at RADI, explained that electromagnetic waves produced by vegetation, soil and geomorphology are different from those of historical sites. But these differences can't be seen by the naked eye. Luckily, special equipment can obtain electromagnetic wave data via remote sensing platforms such as space shuttles, satellites and unmanned aerial vehicles. UAVs. Archaeological information can then be extracted from the data through computer processing. So far, more than 600 ancient remnants of the Great Wall have been found. So you can see the wall from outer space. Yu Li Jun, an associate researcher at Vadi, said the team had outlined a Great Wall resource distribution line and are working to restore images of the ancient Great Wall. Uh, through virtual reality technology, people may soon be able to take a tour, an online tour, of the remains in Xinjiang.
Our next segment, ladies and gentlemen, is Conference Call, where I take you into the world of scientific conferences. Taking place as I record is the 15th annual Lung Science Conference in Estoril, Portugal. The conference's theme is Mechanistic Overlap Between Chronic Lung Injury and Cancer. Now, according to the conference organizers, the European Respiratory Society, the Lung Science Conference is at the forefront of basic and translational respiratory science, and it is an essential event for budding respiratory researchers looking to boost their career. It offers a unique opportunity to network with peers from across the globe, and it'll feature cutting-edge abstracts on novel experimental lung research. The conference includes awards for best presenter aged 35 or less at the time of the conference, best oral presentation and distinguished poster. It also features a mentorship program and a special early career session held on the Saturday afternoon of the conference. Headlining the program is Gary Anderson of Melbourne, Australia, with an opening lecture titled Targeting the Lung Cancer Inflammation Nexus. Ladies and gentlemen, have you ever targeted a nexus? Now, beginning around now is also the National Conference of the U.S. National Science Teachers Association in Los Angeles, California, with the theme Sun, Surf, Science. This event attracts science educators from across the U.S. and around the world and aims to enhance professional learning experiences and provide collaborative opportunities among the attendees in promoting excellence and innovation in science teaching and learning for all. Someone needs to tell that person how to shorten a sentence. I need a drink. The conference has four strands. The next generation of science teaching. 2017, a STEM odyssey. Because, you know, the Arthur C. Clarke. Science and literacy reloaded. Is that a Matrix uh, illusion? And finally, Mission Possible. Ah, I get it. The next generation was a Star Trek thing. Yeah, okay, sorry. The last of the four strands was Mission Possible, Equity for Universal Access. The keynote speaker at the conference for the National Science Teachers Association is Andy Weir, author of the book The Martian. The first 250 people in line for Andy's session will receive a free classroom edition copy of the book. Also part of the conference will be the Planetary Society Lecture, delivered by Bill Nye, who you may have heard of. He's a scientist, comedian, teacher, and author, and he's going to speak on the topic of how nerds solve problems. You can follow the conference on Twitter using the hashtag NSTA17. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to introduce another segment, which I call Dataset of the Week. Unfortunately, no one can be told what... Dataset of the Week. Yes. You have to see it for yourself. In this segment, we speak about some of the amazing data sets that are now publicly available for you and me to download, explore, analyze, visualize, internalize, and regurgitate. Because there's so much data to choose from, we need to narrow it down. And this week, I've taken randomwordgenerator.com and gotten the word range. So I'm going to be telling you about a couple of data sets that popped up when I typed that word into the data search engine. The data search engine of which I speak is data.gov.au and the data set is the Macedon Ranges Shire Council's Waste Collection data set. 
This dataset contains the spatial extents and collection day details of waste collection zones within the Macedon Ranges Shire Council. The data is available in shapefile format as well as WFS, GeoJSON and WMS. The Shire of Macedon Ranges is a local government area in Victoria, Australia, located in the central part of the state. It covers an area of over 1,700 square kilometres and at the 2011 census had a population of 41,860. It includes the towns of Clarkfield, Gisborne, 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 Kyneton, Lancefield, Macedon, Malmesbury, Malmesbury Villa, Mount Macedon, New Gisborne, New Gisborne, Riddles Creek, Romsey and Woodend. Uh, it was formed in 1995 from the amalgamation of the Shire of Romsey, the Shire of Gisborne, the Shire of Newham and Woodend, and most, but not all, of the Shire of Kyneton. Also available at data.gov.au is the Rawlinson Range Young Range Aeromagnetic Reconnaissance Survey, Western Australia, from 1960, and it's available in PDF format. Brought to you by Geoscience Australia, an aeromagnetic reconnaissance to indicate the eastern margin of sedimentary rocks in the Rawlinson Range Young Range area of Western Australia, and it was flown in October 1960. The reconnaissance consisted of two groups of traverses west of Giles. Each group consisted of three traverses in a triangular pattern. Aeromagnetic traverses were also flown from Alice Springs to Giles and from Giles to Kalgoorlie. Data from these traverses and from others flown in previous years were used to evaluate the results, which indicate that the boundary of the region where the magnetic basement is either very shallow or crops out follows a line from the eastern part of the Rawlinson Range, west and southwest, to Mount Charles, and then southeast and south to Axe Hill. The boundary then turns east towards Skirmish Hill. Wonder what kind of history is there. Um, before it swings southeast along the northern edge of the Officer Basin, imaginatively titled basin, sedimentation west of this boundary could reach depths of more than 10,000 feet. This is back when we had the imperial system. Over a considerable area, but much of the sedimentary rocks could be of Proterozoic age. Ladies and gentlemen, have you tried the Proterozoic diet? amazing results. The western boundary of the sediments was not determined. Um, so this data set is a 16-page report from the Department of National Development, Bureau of Mineral Resources, Geology and Geophysics. Ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to the Science of the Local podcast, available on iTunes, soundcloud.com slash science of the local and all good podcast providers. Science of the Local is not just a podcast. It's also a series of bi-monthly talks by expert and engaging scientists delivered in a cosy setting to the good folk of the Blue Mountains. To find out more, go to facebook.com slash science at the local. Science at the Local is run by me, Hamish Clark, and Kevin Joseph. We're supported by Springwood and Windmillie Neighbourhood Centres, and in 2017, by the Inspiring Australia Program of the Commonwealth Government. By listening to this podcast, you agree to our end-user licence agreement. See you next time. Science is real.